those of you who don't regularly come, we are trying to read our way through scripture, kind of one or two chapters at a time. For today, um, 1 Samuel 24 is really beautiful for Baptism Sunday. And so I thought for the scripture reading, we would do uh, chapter 23, and then I just have some quick thoughts about it. So 1 Samuel 23, which is, we're going through 1 Samuel as a sermon series, in case you're curious. When David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord and the Lord answered him. Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now Abiathar, who we read a story about a couple weeks ago, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. And the ephod was like a fancy breastplate with some jewels in it, and in it were two things called the Urim and Thummim which is like a fancy rock, paper, scissors that they used for making decisions, um, that God would direct them in those decisions. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has handed him over to me, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the ephod. David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, He will. Again David asked, Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, They will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the deserts of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horesh in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Here's another beautiful portrait of, of friendship. Anytime we see Jonathan, there's something amazing that happens. So Jonathan says to David, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. The the hint of bittersweetness here is that Jonathan says, I'll be second in command. He's basically turning over his throne, his right to the throne to David. But this is the last time David and Jonathan will ever see each other um, after this, these best friends they never see each other again, and, and Jonathan will actually die not long after this. So it's it's an incredibly sad moment. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh, on the hill of Hakilah, south of Jeshonman? I don't know, these places, whatever. Isn't David around us, basically they're saying? Now, O king, come down wherever, whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for handing him over to the king. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and make further preparation. Find out where David usually goes and who, he is, who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you. If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. 
So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began to search, and when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off in pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. This is why they call this place Selah Hamalakoth, which means rock of parting. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Okay, aside from a bunch of places you've never heard of, what, what does this mean for us? Well, we've seen for the last bunch of chapters as we've been reading for Samuel that these two anointed leaders are going in opposite directions. Um, Saul is pursuing David to crush him. Saul is king. He is desperate for legitimacy, but he's on his way down because he refuses to pay attention to God or, or what God wants. David, on the other hand, everything he does, he, he can't fail. God is with him. He's on the ascension. He, everything works out for David. Um, and so this chapter puts an emphasis on the thing that makes David and Saul different. And the thing in this chapter is that as king of Israel, Saul should be, should be chiefly concerned with the threat of the Philistines. That's why Israel wanted a king in the first place. Instead, the only thing he can think about, the only thing he's focused on, is wiping out a perceived threat. A young man, David, who's only ever shown him loyalty and humility and and dedication. He's been a loyal servant to Saul, and Saul is jealous of him and wants to get rid of him. Meanwhile, it's David who does the dirty work in dealing with the Philistines. He's already doing what the king should be doing. But it's the manner in which he carries out his actions. um, That's the biggest difference between David and Saul. The biggest difference is that Saul is reliant upon rumors and informants to plan his moves. He's basically reliant on gossip. And he acts instinctively based on his own hateful obsession with the object of his jealous wrath. He is singularly focused on his selfish desire to destroy David. He is fueled pathetically by human gossip and foolishness. David, on the other hand, turns to Yahweh for guidance throughout the passage. Whether or not he should deal with the Philistines, he consults God. Whether or not he should stay in Keilah after saving the city, he consults God. Dealing with the threat of Saul, he consults God. When it comes to great victory that brings him acclaim, David turns to God. And when it comes to fearful uncertainty that brings him danger, David also turns to God. He is singularly focused on the selfless will of God, fueled powerfully by divine guidance and wisdom. For us, the contrast is just as clear. We don't have the benefit of of Abiathar's ephod with its holy Urim and Thummim. We don't have God's voice speaking to us literally. Um, It's hard to know God's will for us. We We don't have what the people of the Old Testament seem to have from time to time, but we do have sources of wisdom. In fact, we have the same sources of wisdom that David had. We have God's written word. For David, that was the law. For us, it's the Bible. We have illuminating ritual, which helped um, David, the, the sacred ephod and the Urim and Thummim. We have all kinds of rituals that we partake in that help us know what God wants us to do and who he wants us to be. And David has encouragement from loved ones, from Jonathan, and, and that's the whole purpose of church. Um, we also have the benefit of something that David doesn't have access to, and that's the Holy Spirit, which is promised to dwell within us and guide us in all things. 
We're called to saturate ourselves in his presence and experience the transformation that comes with a renewed mind and a fresh kingdom-focused vision. That's what it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is the sort of guidance that led Madison to decide to be baptized today. She didn't consult the sacred ephod with its holy tokens of chance. She never had an angel appear and tell her to take the plunge. The sky never opened up and a deep booming voice never told her to get baptized unless it was Bear who told her or maybe Jesse. But Madison, like David, has turned her life over in submission to God's will. And in doing so, she is being guided in big decisions and small towards a wisdom that brings glory to her God and life to herself and those around her. Which is something that we here at Clyde Christian Bible Church have been able to share with Madison the last three summers. So that's the contrast between Saul and David in chapter 23. It's an important line in the sand for us who read it today. Will we be selfishly dedicated to ourselves, being guided perilously by rumors and half-truths and empty desires? Or will we be selflessly dedicated to our king, being guided powerfully by his way, his truth, and his life? Let's pray, then we'll sing a song that speaks to that kind of submission to God's will and also reminds us of baptism. We're going to sing the river next, but let's pray. God, I pray that you would guide us, that you would fill us with wisdom, that you'd fill us with your spirit, just as David was. We have just as much access to you as David did, and we don't need any fancy, sacred anything to do so. We, we just come to you thanks to you, Jesus, thanks to your death and resurrection. Um, I pray that we would be guided by you, our King, in all that we say and do. We sing to you now. We sing these words of submission to you. Uh, we celebrate Madison's submission and baptism, but each of us, help us to, to all consider how we can turn our lives over to you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So let's stand and sing.
Jesus, we thank you right now for your sacrifice, um, how you gave it all um, for us um, imperfect people. Um, we just thank you so much for the blood that you shed. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hello, everybody. Um, okay, so when I think of remembrance, there's so many things that come to mind, like um, an anniversary, like when you're married, you remember that day, that covenant that you made, um, you remember uh, for Remembrance Day, you remember the soldiers, what they did um, that sacrificed themselves for our freedoms, and you remember um, births, birthdays, the days... <laughs> you know, that you celebrate the birth of everybody here. <laughs> um, and so there's so many things that you have as signs, as like symbols that represent those things that you that you remember. And um, for today, like in communion, we remember what Jesus did for us. And with all of the things that I remember and that we remember, it's not so much the specific day that it happened, on an anniversary, you don't remember, you don't just go back and think about that day that you got married. You think of from that day you got married, what has happened and all the greatness. A birthday, you don't think so much about the birth. You think of the life and what it brought. Um, you don't think about the war. You think about our freedoms and, and the gratitude that we have. And I think that with communion, we don't need to think so much about the death, but the life that God gave us from that and that remembrance. Um, you know, the rainbow reminds us that we're not going to be flooded. And in the Bible, it says that that was a reminder for God as well. And this symbol that we take is also a reminder for him for his sacrifice that he made for us. And um, I think that that's something that we have to really remember when we are taking communion is that it's not so much that that the suffering happened, but it's why it happened. And that when we do take it, it's that remembering that we earned, well, we didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it, nothing. But because God remembered us, even when we weren't born yet, weren't alive, anything like that, um, that promise, that new covenant is still there. And um, even with baptism, you don't so much remember the day you were baptized. You just remember afterwards, like, who the, the life you have after in Christ and um, that symbol and that sign. And it's just something that you can always come back to. And yeah, so um, I just wanted to read the, uh, the Lord's Supper in Luke 22. First, I'll start at 14. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. Then he said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciple saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took another cup of wine and said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. 
and I'll stop there. But shall we pray? Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your sacrifice. God, thank you so much for sacrificing your son. I can't imagine what that would be like. Lord, thank you, God, that we can partake in these these symbols together to know that um, you did sacrifice your body and your blood for us and that we get to be these new people every single day remembering your covenant to us. And it's new every day because we screw up every day. <laughs> God, and I just am so grateful that um, we can go and just remember what you did and who we are and whose we are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay. So chapter 23, which we read earlier, confirmed a few things about our story in 1 Samuel. The chase is still on, and although David is barely escaping with his life, we know the bigger picture. We are privy to the bigger picture. It may seem that David is vulnerable to King Saul, but really it's Saul who is vulnerable. He will indeed be replaced exactly like he fears, and he is powerless to halt David's ascent to the throne. Everything that has happened to David has validated that he will one day be king. Everything that is except this pesky pursuit by a murderous madman who also happens to be David's king. And I might add, his father-in-law. So that's complicated. And oh yeah, God's chosen anointed leader, King Saul. As we'll see in this passage, that last relationship, his anointed chosen leader, is the stickiest point of all. Last we saw of David and Saul, they were on opposite ends of a mountain, kind of chasing each other, or Saul chasing David, and David was the vulnerable one. But in this next chapter, the two anointed leaders get even closer, much, much closer to one another, and it will not be David who will be the vulnerable one. Let's read 1 Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men, and that seems like overkill. But he chose, took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and sent out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king! When Saul looked down behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? 
Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. I love this chapter, and not just because it's an opportunity for bathroom humor. Speaking of which, do you know what the actual Hebrew says in verse 3, which we have translated as Saul went to relieve himself? The actual Hebrew says that Saul went into the cave to cover his feet. Cover his feet is an Israelite euphemism for going to the bathroom. And let me tell you, if you're covering your feet, you are doing it very wrong. So I learned that in my studies. thought that was important to pass on to you. Um, That's my sermon. Let's go to the baptism. Just kidding. As I mentioned, I love this chapter. I love it because as we've seen throughout 1 Samuel, and particularly as we explored in last week's sermon, David is a foreshadowing figure for an heir to his throne who would arrive on the scene some thousand years later, and that's Jesus. Everything about David points us towards Jesus. In David, who is a man after God's own heart and the greatest king of Israel, um, we learn what a Messiah is like. Sorry, that was from before. It's not a perfect image, of course, because David is not a perfect man. This is, he's not a perfect image of who Jesus will become. But there is perhaps no clearer image of what our own king looks like than the image of the future king that we're given in chapter 24. I want us to put ourselves in David's sandals for a moment as he hunkers down in the back of the cave. What do you, David, know with confidence about your own future? What do you know about what God has planned for you? You know that you've been anointed by Samuel the priest and prophet, paving the way for you to replace Saul as king. You know that everyone around you assumes you will one day be king, including the son's own the king's own son, Jonathan, your best friend, and a man who willingly lays down his own rights to the throne because he believes in you so strongly. You know that God is guiding you and protecting you, as seen in the events of the previous chapter, which we read earlier. Everything and everyone is confirming and validating your eventual ascent to the throne of Israel. Everyone, that is, except your greatest enemy, the man who happens to occupy that very throne at the moment. Well. Not at this moment, necessarily. This moment, Saul is in need of a different kind of throne altogether. And I promise that's my last toilet joke for the morning. Boo! Can't can't get a little immaturity on your Sunday mornings. All jokes aside, you know, um, you, David, crouched in the cave, you know some things about this enemy who's crouching in front of you. You know that he is dead set on eliminating you from the face of the earth. You know he has just murdered an entire town simply because someone in that town gave you a piece of bread. You know that he will not rest until you are a corpse in a tomb, very much like this cave that you are currently sitting and shivering inside of. But you also know that he will be replaced one day. Or at least, you trust that he will be replaced. No is probably too strong a word. Saul doesn't seem to be losing any strength, and he certainly isn't losing any determination. 
you trust that even as God is raising you up, that same God is preparing to bring Saul and all his selfish, foolish, foolish wrath crashing down. You trust that you're on the way up as he's on the way down. You remember these beautiful words from Hannah, mother of the great hero who anointed you. This is from chapter 2, which says, The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. You know that you have come from nothing, from dust and ash, as it says in chapter 2, and are being prepared for inheriting the glorious throne of honor. You know that Saul is completely reliant on his own strength, his political strength, his informants, information strength, his military strength, all strength except the strength that comes from humble submission to the true king of Israel. That's the kind of strength he doesn't have and will never have again. You know that Saul opposes the Lord, as it says in this verse behind me, and for that he will be broken. Then you, David, crouched in the cave of En Gedi, remember another part of Hannah's song which reads, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in a place of darkness. It would seem that the God who is guarding your feet has placed your feet literally at the feet of your greatest enemy. It would appear that here in this cold, filthy place of darkness, that the treachery of Saul's kingship will be silenced forever. You have that opportunity. It would appear, as your own men urge you, that God has given you this opportunity to slay your enemy and clear the way for your ascent to the throne. All you need to do is creep up silently, bring a sword, watch your step, (laughs) and finish this foolish pursuit once and for all. After all, what's a little blood to add to the filth of this cave and the filth of this king? But as you creep closer, you remember another important truth from the Song of Hannah. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This too would be an encouragement to you, David, being the future king who is already anointed. Except there, in the dark of the cave, you were struck with the thought, you are not the only anointed king in this place. There is another, and he is crouched right in front of you. Yes, David, you have been anointed for the kingship of Israel. You have the promise of God's protecting presence draped powerfully over your life, but so does your enemy. So does Saul. You couldn't take the life of one who has been called and commissioned by the same Lord as you, even if he's a wretched and wrathful excuse for a king. Thank you, Angie. Despite what your comrades tell you, despite what your desires tell you, despite what any person in your situation would do, you simply cannot kill the Lord's anointed one, no matter how much it seems like the simplest solution to all your problems. And so you cut off the hem of his robe instead. Rather than take his throat or take his throne, you simply take his tassels. And even that act of mercy causes you guilt. Even that gracious act of cutting cloth rather than flesh, even that fills you with shame. You've raised your hand in violence against the Lord's anointed ruler. Crawling silently back to your men, you are met with stunned faces, mouths agape, eyes squinting bewilderedly in the dark. They expected to hear the throes of death. Instead, they get chastised. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with that, the precedent is set, and it's set unbelievably high. Raising your hand to God's anointed one is tantamount to raising your hand against God himself. 
God will work out his plan in due time. Trust in that plan. To kill his enemy would have made David no different from Saul himself. David's life and future are surely in God's hands. It is therefore not David's job to take matters into his own hands. Patience, mercy, and humility are victorious over violence, vengeance, and selfish desire. As always, grace is the bravest act of all. But the truly amazing thing about David's act of mercy is is this. Although it seems contrary to conventional wisdom, and though it seems like an act of self-sabotage, why would you let your enemy keep pursuing you? He's just going to get you someday. He's just going to kill you. But it is undeniably effective. You see, the most powerful validation of David's eventual kingship comes from God himself. But the validation of other people is important too. David has received validation from all the most crucial figures among the contemporaries in Israel. He has received the stamp of approval from Samuel, the kingmaker. He's received acclaim and love from Saul's own children, Michael, his wife, and Jonathan, his best friend, both of whom have put their lives on the line in devotion to David and his eventual claim to kingship. David's even received the popular validation of the public, of the people at large. All of God's people are enraptured by his humble origins and his brilliant military exploits. David has been validated by every man, woman, and child in Israel with one major exception, Saul himself. But that's about to change as David steps out of the cold, dark filth of the cave. It begins with David's actions and words, both of which show absolute humility. He bows as low as possible, face to the ground. He calls Saul his lord, his king, and even his father. He calls himself a dead dog and a flea. But more crucially, David calls himself something else as well. He calls himself innocent. This is courtroom language at its finest, and David is calling Yahweh himself to be his judge. And with God as his judge, David makes it clear that A, he has no evil intention against Saul, and B, Saul need not have any evil intention towards David in return. David's hands are merciful and innocent, free of blood, and resting assuredly in the greater hands of God Almighty. And again, the most remarkable aspect of this story isn't just the mercy of David, it's the effect that this mercy has on dousing the jealous fire of Saul. In fact, faced with all this evidence of his own wickedness, Saul isn't just doused, he is drenched in a torrent of guilt and shame and recognition of the reality that's facing him. Um, He is so drenched, in fact, that it leads to uncontrollable weeping. As Brueggemann writes, he weeps because he must now face what he has long known. He weeps because he must now confront the truth he has avoided. Saul must face the truth of his own life. It's over for Saul. And he faces that and he admits to that. It's a powerful scene. Mercy leads to genuine repentance and genuine recognition of reality. Saul can finally see the goodness of his nemesis and the inhumane brutality of his own jealousy. Most remarkably, however, is how Saul can see the clarity of their own contrasting futures. He declares, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Saul becomes the final and humanly speaking most crucial stamp of approval for the kingship of David. With God as his judge, David has been acquitted of all charges. How ironic that David had been so vulnerable to Saul and now the tables have turned so dramatically. All that Saul can do in the glaring light of David's inevitable ascent to the throne is beg for kindness, beg for mercy. And the request that Saul makes is rooted in David's act towards him in his moment of supreme vulnerability in the cave behind him. This is what Saul asks for. The NIV says, 
Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. If you have a newer version of the NIV, that's what it says. But for the life of me, I don't know why they didn't translate it literally. If they had, it would read, Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or destroy my name from my father's family. The same Hebrew verb used in verses 4 and 5, as David cuts off the corner of Saul's robe, is here again in verse 21. David's cutting of Saul's robe is much more than a a coy sort of gotcha moment. It's not just proof that he could have cut Saul's throat. It's an acknowledgement that Saul himself is being cut off. The rise of David threatens to cut off Saul's entire heritage and family line. And so when David cuts off, it's an acknowledgement of what's going to happen to Saul. He will be cut off. It was common among kings in the ancient Near East who took over the throne from someone to wipe out all their descendants, all those who might have a claim to the throne. That was common practice. Even in Middle Ages, even in semi-modern Europe, that, that was a common practice. You eliminated all threats, and who poses a bigger threat to the family line than the previous monarch? In light of the evidence of David's mercy and cutting off only the hem of his robe, Saul asks for an extension of that mercy. He, he says, don't cut me off altogether. Protect my legacy. Protect my descendants. Don't I know that I'm going to be cut off as king. Don't cut off my children from the face of this earth. That's the one thing that Saul can ask of David. He makes David make an oath. Please don't cut me off altogether from this world. And spoiler alert, David upholds his end of the oath. He never lays a hand to any of Saul's children. They all, almost all of them, conveniently die in battle, so he doesn't need to raise a hand, but David doesn't doesn't kill any of Saul's family. In fact, he takes pity on Saul's disabled grandson, Mephibosheth. And we had talked about David had made an oath to Jonathan to do that as well. But he fulfills his end of the bargain. He will not cut off Saul's lineage. David is, after all, a man after God's heart. And God's heart beats with mercy and compassion and faithfulness to his promises. So, as we apply this passage to ourselves today, we have a powerful parable on the importance of mercy, the importance of trusting patiently in the promises of God, and the importance of respecting others whom God has called and anointed. But I think this story contains more than that. I think this story is a powerful demonstration of who Jesus is and who we are before Jesus. I think this story is a beautiful lead-in to the ceremony that we'll get to witness later. The connection between David and Jesus as lesser and greater Messiah figures is obvious. In the story of chapter 24, it's easy for us to put ourselves in the place of King Saul and for Jesus to play the role of the future King David. The world, like the outhouse cave of En Gedi, is a dark and cold and filthy place. Nothing is as it should be, and even the best things are corrupted by human fallenness. Nature is good, but we tend to destroy it for our own use. Sex is good, but we tend to corrupt it. Human diversity is good, but we tend to fear it. Work is good, but we tend to worship it. Religion is good, but we tend to legalize it. Food is good, but even that gets corrupted. Despite my best attempts, man cannot live on pizza and Pringles and Pepsi alone. And the list goes on and on. Everything good that my Heavenly Father gives me gets corrupted by my insatiable appetites for pleasure and ego and comfort and control. And with every human on planet Earth defaulting to those same selfish desires, the world gets pretty dark and cold and filthy pretty quick. If you don't believe me, watch election coverage down south, or in Alberta for that matter, or even read the Westlock News and see how fundamentally divided we tend to be from our neighbor. 
And I know I'm guilty of furthering those divides, even when I have the best of intentions. In other words, I know that I am Saul in this story. I am often the antagonist. I am an affront. I am a challenge to the goodness and innocence of the anointed one in my presence. My pride, my jealousy, my greed, my lust, my selfishness, my wrath, all of my corruption and waywardness must feel to Jesus like David felt to Saul. Why are you hunting me down, Chris? Why are you trying to destroy everything that I'm doing in you, Chris? Why are you so hell-bent, literally, on destroying yourself, Chris? Why do you wallow in the dark and the cold and the filth? And for this darkness, this coldness, and this filthiness, I believe that I am worthy of being cut off. I know that I'm far from innocent, that I, like Saul in that cave, contribute to the mess of the world that I live in. I know that who I am stands in the crowd and yells, crucify him, as they did at Jesus. I know that that's my voice as well. I know that I helped nail my king to the cross. I know that in light of his pure, radiant holiness, I deserve someone innocent like Jesus to sneak up behind me and put me and my world out of its collective misery. That's what I deserve. I, I know how broken I am. It's important to know how broken you are. But instead, out of that misery comes mercy, grace. We may not even know that our Messiah is there. Saul didn't know that David was there, but he's there. And he doesn't cut us out. He might cut off a corner of our robe to show us just how broken and corrupt we've been. It's like, see here, I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life, Jesus could say to me just as easily as David says to Saul in verse 11. But then he'll step out into the light with us, out of the darkness, out of the coldness, out of the filth, and he'll demonstrate his grace, just like David does for Saul. See here, some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. Jesus could just as easily say that to me. In fact, he takes it a step further. He doesn't just spare us. He swaps with us. He allowed himself to get cut off. He allowed himself to be buried as a corpse, to experience the fullness of death. But he didn't remain in the dark and the cold and the filth of the tomb for long. It couldn't contain him. And when he stepped out into the warmth and the light and the cleanliness of life, he promised to take us with him. The mercy of our king means that we deserve death, like Saul, but also like Saul, we are not given death. Instead, we're given an opportunity to say, Jesus, you were with me all along in the cold and the dark and the filth of this world. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly, which is what Saul says to David. We have an opportunity to weep, to bow low before him, to ask forgiveness and to receive promises we can trust, promises of faithfulness and grace that extend even beyond death itself. Promises that we will not and cannot be wiped out or cut off from his presence. Promises of light and life and love. Promises from a good king to a beloved child. So it's easy for me to see how I am Saul and Jesus is David. He is the giver of mercy and I am the receiver of mercy. It's a promise I cling to in the midst of this dark, cold, filthy cave of a world. In fact, this is part of the purpose of baptism. It's a public acknowledgement of our own filth that needs to be washed away when confronted by his goodness and his grace. That is a very powerful aspect of what Madison is declaring before us this morning. But there's another angle to the story of 1 Samuel 24. In this angle, the positions are actually reversed. 
In this angle, I am David, and Jesus is Saul. Obviously not the jealous, vengeful, self-possessed aspects of King Saul. Jesus is none of those things. But in one aspect, Jesus is definitely Saul, and I am definitely David. And it ties into a story from Mark 5, a story that I know Madison has heard me teach about a few times. I've talked about a Jasper camp at Bethel. Um, Her and Isaac and I were studying Mark this summer, and so we talked about, I know she's heard me say this before. I, I really love this story, and it ties in beautifully. In Mark 5, Jesus is on his way to, you know, raise a 12-year-old from the, from the grave, which is just a common day for Jesus. But on his way, he encounters a woman who has suffered from a menstrual bleed for as long as that previous girl had been alive, for 12 years. 12 years of constant bleeding with no healing and no relief. She's expended all her money, expended all her tears, expended all her hope. Worst of all, because this bleeding technically makes her perpetually unclean in a ritual sense, almost no one will have anything to do with her. The rabbis and teachers and town folk, probably even many of her own family members, they all treat her like a leper. They shrink away from her touch. They are afraid that her very presence will make them unclean by proxy. She is the definition of life in the cave, dark, cold, and made to feel filthy for something that's beyond her control. And still, her problem only continues to get worse. One day she hears a great commotion. A crowd has sprung up in her neighborhood. She dons a cloak to give herself some cover and runs off to the sound of desperate pleas and excited cheers. There are so many people crashing in from all sides, but she sees in the center of the crowd the one they are all focused on. It's Jesus, the miracle-making rabbi from Nazareth. Hope begins to return. She angles herself toward him, pressing through, head down, feeling a pang of guilt with every person she bumps into, hoping and wishing that nobody will recognize her. So many people are calling out for the man in the, in the center, trying to make their pain known to him to receive his mercy, but she doesn't do that. The last thing that she wants is to be seen, to be recognized, and to be known. She is so close to him, close enough that she begins to wonder what she will actually do if she gets close enough to touch him since drawing attention to herself is out of the question. She settles on a simple plan of great faith. If this man can raise the dead with merely a word, surely just a touch of his robe would be enough to stop her pain. Like David, she creeps up from behind him, unknown and unseen, and reaches out and takes hold of the very bottom corner of his robe, a small touch that demonstrates enormous trust. And immediately, her faith is rewarded. She can feel the change in her own body. The bleeding stops. After 12 years, a mere touch of his robe is enough to halt her agony, at least physically. She's still not sure if her community would be willing to take her back. But she begins to retreat from the crowd. And that's when it happens. She wasn't destined to remain unknown and unseen and anonymous. Jesus halts the crowd and everyone falls eerily silent. He calls out, wait, everyone, wait a second. Who touched my cloak? His friends, James and John, look incredulous. They ask him, almost in unison, Who touched you, Jesus? Look at this crowd. And Peter continues, Yeah, Jesus, there are dozens of people pressing up against you right now, and you ask who touched me? It could be anyone here. you got to be kidding me. But Jesus is undeterred. No, this was different. I could feel my power going out of me, and I'm sure the person who touched me felt that same power going into themselves. So I ask again, Who touched me? 
The woman knew that she couldn't keep her guilt hidden from him for long. Best to confess her sin quickly and receive the punishment that an unclean woman would deserve for spreading her filth to a holy man like him. Perhaps, she hopes desperately, perhaps if I beg for mercy, he will leave me unpunished. Maybe he'll even keep the bleeding from returning to me. She falls down at his feet, weeping, trembling, explaining her dark circumstances, describing the coldness of her world, confessing the filthiness that she's been made to feel. She feels the judgment from the crowd around her. She wishes she had never touched this cloak. She wishes she had never come here. She wishes she had never been born. She was so deep in the dark, cold cave of her filth and shame that she wasn't listening to what he was saying. She heard someone calling out daughter, daughter in the crowd and assumed that it was a father looking for his lost child. She looked up and saw that it was Jesus. He was the one calling out daughter. She was the lost child in the crowd and she is the one who had been found. But was he really calling her daughter? Her own father had stopped calling her that years ago. She was a black mark on the family name. But here, the holy man was calling her daughter. She expected to be cut off. Instead, she was being welcomed home. Daughter, he continued, once her eyes were lifted up to his. He spoke gently, but authoritatively. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's a super powerful story. David understood how special it was to be God's anointed one. He couldn't take Saul's life. He felt guilty enough just taking the hem of his robe. Saul was set apart by Yahweh. He was unique as king of Israel. The corner of his robe would have to be enough. And in this way, Jesus is like King Saul. He doesn't just offer us mercy and grace and then that's the end of the story. Just a small amount of contact with Jesus Christ is enough to see how beautiful and glorious and good he is. How compassionate and patient and fulfilling he is. He doesn't just save us from wrath and then walk away. He calls out to us. He welcomes us like a son or a daughter. He gives us a place to belong. He redeems us and restores us to one another as well as to our God. He doesn't just stop the suffering we deserve. He is a comfort in any suffering that we can know. After all, he doesn't call us from outside of the cave. He steps into the cave with us. He knows all about the coldness and darkness and filthiness of the cave. And he still calls us. He still calls us his beloved child. He still goes with us in peace. He still frees us from our suffering. He knows how broken we are. And he still steps into the cave with us. and calls us out because he is a good king. So yes, it's easy to see how we are Saul and he is David. We can see that we are in need of mercy and he offers it. But he doesn't just offer mercy. He offers belonging. He offers peace. He offers relief from his suffering. Sorry, from our suffering. If we have enough faith to recognize his holiness and still approach him, if we can take hold of even a small handful of Jesus' power, then we can be transformed in his presence. He is so good so holy, but he still comes into the cave with us. He is not afraid of our darkness, our coldness, our filthiness. He loves us enough that he entered a cave of his own, a tomb, in fact. But when his light and life and love burst out of the cave, it calls us to himself. In his light and love and life, we aren't just forgiven. We aren't just shown mercy and then shown the door. 
He doesn't just walk away like Saul does from David. He stays because he is where we belong. This is the other thing that Madison is declaring with her baptism ceremony. It's not just a cleansing because she, like all of us, is ceremonially unclean and needs to be cleansed. That's part of it for sure. But it's also a rebirth, a celebration of new creation. She's acknowledging that she is daughter of the king. She is publicly proclaiming that while all of us are God's children, she wants to fully embrace him as father and king, to live in the light that he calls her into, to know peace in suffering, to know love and acceptance, to walk out of this dark, cold, filthy cave into a new life with Christ as her guide. I couldn't be more honored and privileged to be a part of that. In 1 Samuel 24, Jesus is David because he is a merciful king. But he is also Saul because we can approach him and even a small amount of Jesus is enough to know that we are loved and accepted in his eyes. And we have a glorious future ahead of us that begins today. Even though we are his children, we can't leave this cold, dark, filthy cave of life. Not yet, anyway. But we can bring the light of his mercy, his peace, and his love to others in the cave with us. Think about that next time you are covering your feet, so to speak, or any time. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Um, Thank you that you are like David here, that you show us mercy. We know what we deserve. We also know what you've given us. You've given us light and love and life. Thank you also that you are like Saul, this holy anointed figure, that if we can just touch a corner of you, just a piece of you, We would be filled with power we can't imagine. You are filling us with that power, Spirit, and we thank you for that. Help us to come to you, to be guided by you, to submit ourselves to you as Madison is doing today. Help us all to follow her example, to follow David's example. You are so good, Jesus, and we thank you for your holiness, for your mercy, for the peace that we have in this life with you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. 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 All right, more important than any words I have said today, Madison is going to come up and share a few things about why she's doing this today. Come on up, Madison. This feels like a, like a beach-themed VBS day. I'm about to start doing, like, dances or something, but Chris would normally be here for that, so better not. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I haven't done this type of thing. Um, So I guess I just have a few thoughts about, yeah, like why I'm getting baptized, why I'm getting baptized here, um, a little bit about my own testimony and stuff like that. Um, But I wanted to start by just saying, like, thank you so much for coming, all of you. Um, I wanted to get baptized in Clyde, and I knew that. From the start, I started thinking about getting baptized, like, years ago, like, in 2018, so my first summer here, actually. Um, And, yeah, you guys have all just supported me um, so well and been such good mentors to me in the last three summers and years, too, because it's not like I never see you throughout the year, either. Um, And so I just really appreciate you Um, investing in my spiritual growth and providing so many opportunities for me to um, be a better leader and a better Christ follower 
Um, so I'm really grateful for all of you. I just wanted to start with that. So yeah, um, my baptism is something that's exciting, but it still feels pretty anticlimactic. Um, like I feel like, yeah, like I said, I've been thinking about it for a while, but, um, I've been kind of procrastinating it since then, never really vocalizing it to anybody because it kind of was like, well, what's the point? Like, I feel like the people that are really in my life already know that I'm a Christian and that I've been um, doing this Christian life thing for a long time. So what's the validity and what's the value in like doing like a big public declaration type thing? Um, and I think that's why I procrastinated it for so long because it is something that doesn't really change anything. Um, but I think that because I grew up in the church and because I um, have kind of been, yeah, in the church my whole life and because I started taking my life seriously and it all kind of progressed very gradually, um, I never really got an opportunity to publicly declare my faith in front of people that I love. And I think that that's essentially what baptism is. And so that's what I'm doing today. And that's why I think it's valuable. And that's, yeah. Um, and so I was actually baptized as a baby. and. Um, I'm grateful to have had parents who wanted to be, who wanted God to be part of my life, um, since I was really young. Um, but yeah, the purpose of today is just to, again, just publicly declare the faith that I have lived and that I will continue to live. Um, in my meeting with Chris and Angie about being baptized, Angie said it's something that changes everything and changes nothing. Um, and I've been thinking about that a lot too and trying to prepare, um, and so realistically, today is just another day in my Christian life. Uh, but more than that, it's an opportunity to come before all of you, people who have uh, contributed to and invested in me and my life, uh, and tell you about some of the things that God has done in my life that make Christianity something that I want to pursue. And so when I was growing up, I had no real um, concept of God working in my life and God constantly doing things in my life. But when I look back, I see that God was providing me with with camp and dance, uh, which were two things that I don't know how I would have managed, like a lack of self-confidence and mentorship without. Um, and so through those things, I, I learned a lot about God and about myself. And so um, growing up, I don't know, those are really important. Um, and so in my still young, very young adulthood, um, God has been really faithful in teaching me to have courage and faith in myself. Um, and that's been shown in uh, the leadership qualities that I've been trying to grow in myself and um, that you guys at Clyde have been really good at giving me opportunities to grow. And um, I've been learning about how God has continued to show me to have patience with myself when I fail to step into my identity of, as someone whose sins have been washed clean by his blood. And so this by no means uh, is a declaration of perfect faith, um, almost daily I feel tempted to abandon the faith or just go through this life happy with a passive relationship with God. Um, but ultimately, I know that it's him that I can rely on and that he'll never be offended or threatened by my doubts. And so today I'm finally publicly declaring that I'm choosing to follow the gentle God who always invites me back. And so I think for me, um, Romans 8 puts it really well. It says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So yeah, that is huge for me. And I think as I continue to go through this life post-baptism, um, I'll continue to cling on to the the love of God that will never let me go. Thanks. Not as warm as I thought. Um, just before this happens, I do want to say, um, Addison, you are very special to my family and I, and uh, it's a privilege for us to to be a part of this, and for me personally, to be the one who gets to baptize you. You have long stood out as somebody who walks in the Spirit, bears the fruit of the Spirit. This is just a seal of approval, a stamp of approval on that. So, what an honor! All right. Madison, do you commit yourselves to the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ? Yes. Do you accept his forgiveness, his love, and his leading? Yes. Then it's my great honor to baptize you. Let's pray. God, you are so good, and we celebrate your goodness in Madison today. Um, Thank you for the honor and privilege uh, that this church and these friends and this family got to have in uh, journeying with her and witnessing this day. I pray that you will continue to fill Madison this day and every day with your spirit, um, to be filled with your mercy, to be filled with your light and your love and your life. Um, We thank you for the person she is and for the decision she made today. We love her, and we we know that she loves you, and we're thankful for this day. Amen. Amen. Jesus is David because he is a merciful king, but he's also Saul because we can approach him, and even a small amount of Jesus is enough to know that we are loved and accepted in his eyes. Today I'm finally publicly declaring that I'm choosing to follow the gentle God who always invites me back. Yeah, <laughs> wouldn't that cause a splash? <laughs>